0: John 21, let me read it, and then ask the Lord to guide us in prayer. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will come with you. And they went and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood at the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, You do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from land, but about a 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, a hundred and fifty three. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples. After he was raised from the dead. Would you bow with me? On the surface, perhaps, Lord, this may not seem to be a super incredible story. There's so many facets of it that just seem pretty ordinary, pretty commonplace, not atypical from what we ourselves might experience on our own lake here in Granbury. And yet, there is something Truly miraculous here. The miracle is not the fish. Though that was pretty astounding. But the miracle is what. Our Lord and the Lord of the disciples worked in their hearts. And we rejoice in this story, Father, because this story isn't just about the disciples that were there at Galilee But this story reflects what the Lord does in all those who are his. And the invitation he makes to all who are his. And in fact, the invitation that he makes to all men. This is the beauty of the resurrection story. This is the power of the resurrection. This is the power of the one who resurrected himself from the dead. And so, Father, we rejoice in this story, and we rejoice in the Savior of this story. Would you compel us by this story? Would you transform us by this story this morning? Would you deepen us in our worship by this story? We pray in the name of Christ, for his glory, for his honor. Amen. What is your source of discouragement? This morning, What is keeping you awake at night and occupying your thoughts during the quiet moments of the day or even when you're in conversation with friends? What is enticing you to buy not just more Tums but more stock in Tums because of the quantity of Tums that you're buying? What's provoking you to anxiousness, discouragement, grief, fear? Maybe even anger. While the circumstances change from generation to generation and from life to life, everyone has difficulty. When I was in seminary, a chapel speaker told us one one morning in chapel, when you look out on your congregation, every person in every seat is a discouraged, hurting soul. That might be overstated, but I don't think so. My experience in my own life, my experience of shepherding tells me that people are suffering. People are hurting. There are trials. There are unanticipated and unplanned changes that radically alter our lives. And it has been that way since the day that Adam and Eve unwisely and rebelliously took a bite of the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. Our reality is trials, unwanted change, sorrow, loss, death, difficulty. And we are as powerless to stop those things from happening as if we were to take a rope and try and lasso a 747 and try and keep it from taking off. It's hopeless. So what will you say to that? Where is our hope? Our hope is simply this, friends. He is risen. He is not here. On this day, we have one singular message. On every day, any day, we have one message that will give hope and confidence in life. And it is that Christ is risen from the dead and that has made all the difference. Christ has risen doesn't just mean that we have hope for the future and eternity in heaven. Christ has risen means that we have hope today and confidence today and strength today and transformation today. That is the reality that we find in the story of Jesus' third post-resurrection appearance to the disciples in John 21. This account teaches us that the circumstances of life can tempt us to despair. That was true, certainly, of the disciples. We're going to see that. And it is certainly true of you and I as well. That we are, in whatever our circumstances, potentially enticed on a regular, if not daily, if not hourly basis to discouragement, despondency, and despair. But the reality of Christ's resurrection also gives us every kind of hope. We are confident in this life because of Christ's resurrection. In this passage, we are going to see two contrasting realities of life that demonstrate the provision and power of Christ. The circumstances of life Can tempt us, will tempt us to despair, but Christ's resurrection gives us every kind of hope. Now, if you have that outline in front of you, I realized yesterday afternoon, after everything was printed, that I did not leave you enough space. So you might just kind of flip over because I have a few things to say, to observe, before we get into the text. I want you to notice as we start this, the beginning... And end of the story. Verse 1. After these things. After what things? After Jesus had been with the disciples. Flip back to chapter 20. We've already seen Peter and John at the empty tomb. We've seen Mary at the empty tomb. And then after that, Jesus appears to the disciples. Thomas isn't there. Thomas doesn't believe the account of the disciples. And then seven days later, Jesus appears again, this time to Thomas. And now Thomas also believes. And it says in verse one that Jesus manifested himself. In fact, it says he manifested himself twice in that verse. Verse 14 makes the same point. This is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples with the twelve or excuse me, with the eleven minus Thomas, with the eleven, including Thomas and now at the Sea of Galilee. We know that Jesus had appeared at least four other times to others. So he'd appeared now, with this account, at least seven times in the, roughly the first week after his resurrection. And what we find from that is that Jesus is constantly making himself available to the disciples, revealing himself, revealing his resurrection body and personhood to the disciples while he is not with them in the same way that he was prior to the resurrection He is making clear to them that He is with them. What I want you to notice particularly in verses 1 and 13, or excuse me, 14, is that three times John has said, Jesus manifested Himself. That's the key to this account. He's telling us the story to tell us that Christ, after the resurrection, Is real. He is alive. He's not only alive. He's shown himself. In fact, this this really isn't just a a bracketing of this story. The the statements that he has manifested himself. But this account, in a sense, provides a bracket for the entire book of John. Remember how the book started? Chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In the beginning, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And this Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the beginning of the book, he says, we have seen him. He has revealed himself to us. At the end of the book, we see he has revealed himself to us. This is the message of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this manifestation? The word manifestation is used three times in the passage that we have in front of us. It certainly means he showed himself, but it means more than just he showed up. It means more than just an appearance. The word manifest means to reveal him for who he is, to demonstrate the fullness and the magnitude of who he is as the eternal God-man. And as John uses it in this passage, he uses it particularly to emphasize that this is Jesus' self-disclosure. Notice verse 1. He manifested himself. That is, he was going out of the way to show the disciples, this is who I am. And here is a reminder that if anyone will see and know Jesus Christ, it is only because he has revealed himself. Even though they had spent three years with Him, when they're on the boat a hundred yards away and they see Him on the shore, they don't realize who it is. They cannot see Him. I believe it's the same thing that happened to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus closed their eyes so that they couldn't see until the opportune moment, and then He opened their eyes to see Him. It is a reminder... That only those who have been graced by God to see will see him. Why? Because as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You have to have the Spirit to understand. God's got to show himself. God's got to reveal Himself. And the story tells us that Christ has done that very thing. And that revelation, that manifestation, is not just interesting. It's not just cool. It is wholly transformative. These men... Are never the same after they see Jesus in this story. Notice also that John notes, verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again. Oh, the disciples were forerunners of us. And so slow to understand, just like we are. They still needed confirmation of his resurrection, though they'd already seen him twice. And having seen him twice, it's notable, isn't it? As everybody shows up at the tomb, nobody's expecting it to be empty. How many times had Jesus said, I've got to rise again. After three days, I'll rise again. Nobody went to the tomb and said, Let's go see the empty tomb and the stone that's rolled away. They all came looking for a body. Nobody expected the resurrected Christ. And there's a sense in this story That even having seen the resurrected Christ, the disciples are still skeptical. They're still wary. They're still uncertain. There's a sense in which they still seem to be unconvinced. So Jesus, in his gentle patience, shows up again and reveals himself again. It is in this encounter and in this revelation that Jesus gave the disciples confidence in Him. Confidence so that they would not only believe in Him, but confidence so that they could be transformed by that resurrection power of Christ. That they would know in their lives the difference that Christ makes. And, brothers and sisters, we come to this story with the same purpose. What difference does Jesus make? What's the big deal? Oh, friends, he is far more than just a teacher. He's, not, he's far more than just an intriguing miracle worker. He doesn't just do tricks. He is utterly transformative in our lives when we encounter him. Even in our provoking circumstances, when we are tempted to discouragement and more, Christ is enough. And his resurrection proves that. So this morning we want to look at the reality of Christ's resurrection power in the lives of these disciples. And we want to see that resurrection power through two contrasting realities. Notice the first reality. The dispirited disciples despair. Despair. Why would the disciples be despairing or discouraged? Notice the progression of the story. The disciples were together, partially. Verse 2, who do we have? Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus. That's the Thomas from chapter 20, who we affectionately call Doubting Thomas. I think when we get to heaven, he's going to want that first adjective dropped. Thomas, Nathanael of Cana, interestingly, this is the first time Nathanael has showed up in the story of Jesus since chapter one of John. So Nathanael's in chapter one and now he shows up in chapter 21. The sons of Zebedee, that's the only time John refers to himself and his brother James in that way in this book, but that's James and John and two others of his disciples who are together. Uh, I've I've read a pile of commentaries this week and they're all speculating on who the disciples were and I'm here to tell you they're two unnamed disciples. We don't know. My guess is, and this is purely a guess, that because they are unnamed they weren't part of the eleven. That's just a guess. But I want you to notice this. Five... Of the eleven are there. Maybe seven. Where are the other four? Where are the other six? We don't know. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus is clear. Tell the disciples. I'm going to Galilee. And I will meet them there. Tell the disciples, plural, all of them, go to Galilee. I'm going to meet them there. And five, maybe seven, show up. Why? Where did the others go? Don't know. It's a guess. It's conjecture on my part. It's in the white pages. This is not anything I can say authoritatively, but it seems to me... Based on what happens in this story, I think they're still discouraged. I think they're still despondent. Life hadn't worked out the way they wanted yet. Peter was leading, and Peter apparently made a decision that was based on the past. Notice verse 3 Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. Jesus says, Meet me at the mountain. And Peter's intentional, and he leaves the mountain. He goes to the lake. It's possible that Peter is simply surmising and saying, you know, Jesus is running a little late. Um, There's some boats down there. Peter was from Capernaum, so that's home territory for him when he goes to the lake. Uh, maybe his family still has the fishing business that they're running in his absence and Andrew's absence. And he says, you know, we can go make a few bucks for the f- weeks ahead if we uh, go fishing tonight. It could be that that's all he was doing. But there's also a possibility this was a planned decision. And I think that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Jesus told him, go to the mountain. And Peter's being intentional in not going to the mountain and in leaving the mountain. There's something in the text that also tells us, hints at the fact that this might be purposeful. And it might be that Peter's not just leaving for the day, but he's leaving. And he's going back to the business. And I say that because of what it says in verse 3. They went out and got into the Boat. Now, Peter just looks down from the mountain and he sees a bunch of boats. He said he might say, hey, there's a boat down there that we can hire out for the day. That's not what he said. Said he went to the boat. The inference is his boat. The boat that he had arranged for. The boat that he had hired. Was it the boat that he bought? I don't know. But it was the boat. The boat. It's part of his plan. Now we know that Jesus had already met alone with Peter for the purpose of reconciliation. That, um, that Peter had been restored to Jesus. But can't you just imagine the weight of what Peter had done ten days earlier? Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Never, Lord. All these guys might, but not me. I'd never deny you. Three times, Peter, tonight. And when that rooster crowed after the third denial, the text says he went out and wept bitterly. You know that kind of weight, don't you? You know that kind of burden. And now it's maybe ten days later, maybe a little bit longer. And he's grieving. It makes every sense that he's hired a boat. He's failed a savior. He's not fit to lead other men. And so he tells the guys, I'm going fishing He doesn't ask them to go with him. He's just making a declaration. I'm out of here. See you later. And he is such a leader. (laughs) That without even asking. The others say. Hey we're coming with you. We will go with you. And they went out. And got in the boat. But Peter's plan didn't work out too well. They went out. Typical boat. Typical way. Typical time. Fishermen would often fish at night, not only because the fishing was good, but because that way, when they finished fishing at night, they could bring their boat into shore and they would be able to go immediately to the market and have fish to sell at the market first thing in the morning. They had probably done this thousands of times. It's possible that John is using the timing of their event in another way. It says they went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Every time John uses the word night, it always has a negative and usually sinful connotation. Let me give you one example. John chapter 13, Jesus is with the disciples. He gives the morsel to Judas. John thirteen thirty, So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And it was night. I don't think John is just making a time reference in John 13. It was the night of Judas soul. Things were never blacker for him. I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that that's what's going on in John 21, but it almost seems that there's an inference of that there. Typical day, typical night, typical boat, typical time, typical way to get in the boat, typical weather. Everything is typical except for one thing. Notice our text. They caught nothing. Nothing. In fact, the way John says it in the Greek, he's emphatic. Nothing. (laughs) Honestly, I kind of chuckled when I figured that out this week because I thought John's kind of telling on himself because he's a fisherman and he got skunked. (laughs) And he's emphatic about it. All night long, nothing. Verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. And now the day was breaking. Dawn's finally coming. They've been at it, I don't know, 10 hours, 12 hours. Casting the net. Pulling it up. Casting the net. Pulling it up. Rowing to a different spot. Casting the net. Pulling it up. Rowing, casting, rowing, casting. Hour after hour and nothing It's not just that they'd been up all night working hard, but it is also that they'd probably been up for at least 24 hours at this point. And then an anonymous observer asks a a question. Verse 5. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? He calls them children. Children. It's not a derogatory word. It's kind of an affectionate word. Um, some people have translated it lads, boys. In our culture, we'd probably say, hey, guys, you didn't get anything, did you? Jesus is not derogatory. But he wants them to understand that they haven't been successful. The word for fish here is is used only in this passage in all of the New Testament. And um, there's a little debate about how to translate it, but the sense is that it's something like a condiment, like something you would spread on a piece of bread. It's a morsel, a tidbit. It's not even a fish. It's like, it's like Jesus is saying, you don't even have a scrap of fish, do you? You didn't even get a throwback fish. I mean, you you got nothing. Our Savior would never do anything with malice or intention to harm. But He's making a point with them. Their return to their profession. The one thing, the one thing that Peter knew how to do, he could not do without Christ. He needed a savior. Just a few days earlier in the upper room, Jesus had said to them, John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And they have seen that with crystal clarity on their fishing trip. Maybe you've had days like this. Your expectations have been met. What was supposed to be celebration has turned to Tragedy. A simple job is turned into hard work. You've been disappointed by circumstances and people. You have regrets. Regrets for your own decisions, your own actions, your own choices. You've failed. Ed Welch talks about the kinds of regrets we have in life. He identifies at least three things that provoke us to regret. Things that we have done that are especially shameful Which means that whatever we did has become public and the public doesn't approve. So we might have failures at school or failures at work or legal problems or public immorality. Or there are things that we did either purposefully or perhaps unintentionally that have hurt someone else. Car accidents, angry, hurtful words, poor parenting, reckless actions of various kinds. Or maybe the regret is around something that you think you could have done to avoid a catastrophe. It's the, if only I, and however you fill out that sentence. Whatever good we know in life, whatever good we experience in life, we also know that we will have trouble. Jesus promised that to the disciples. John 16, in this world, you have tribulation not you will have you do have and you do have on an ongoing basis so that it, it also could be the sense you have now and you will have and you will always have you're dispirited and despairing you failed you don't know where to turn where do you go oh brothers and sisters watch the Savior's provision The resurrected Savior's provision, verse six. I didn't know how to say this. This is not a very theological way to say it, but it fits us where we are. Jesus provides the groceries. And he said to them, and remember, they don't know who this is. Cast the net on the right hand side of the boat. Now, later in the passage, we were told that it's a little boat. Uh, Again, conjecture. Typical fishing boat, small fishing boat, would it be about 25 feet long? So I'm thinking that boat is probably what? 8, 10, maybe 12 feet across? So I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, Terry, you're in the boat with the disciples and somebody says, throw the net on the other side. We've been doing this for 12 hours. All over the lake. Seriously? 10 feet? Cast the net? There is something in the authority of Christ that, even not knowing who He is, they did not flinch, they did not hesitate, they did not rebut, they immediately acted. And they cast the net, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. They can't pull the net in with all seven of them pulling on the net. Without the net breaking and without the net tearing. Hold on to that thought. Seven of them couldn't pull it in. What do we make of this? Some have suggested that. Jesus from his vantage point on the sea could see that there were a bunch of fish on the other side of the boat. Yeah, that's what I thought. No way. The Lord, who kept the fish away from the boat all night long, has now called all the fish and assembled them at the boat. And just as he was able to multiply the loaves and fishes in in his own hands when he was feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000, in the same way he is able to gather hundreds of fish to the boat when he needed them. Oh, brothers and sisters, he's able. He's an adequate Christ, he's an adequate Savior. And then he reveals himself. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Jesus was called Lord often prior to his resurrection, but generally it was used kind of in the cultural sense of sir, term of respect, term of honor. But now after the resurrection, things change When Jesus is called Lord, it is clear that they are speaking of him as the master, the sovereign, the one who demands subservience to those who follow him. It's denoted by what Thomas said. A day, two days, three days earlier, we don't know, but shortly earlier in the upper room, 2028, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And John sees Jesus and his eyes are open. He sees the reality of the sovereign. It has been noted that on the accounts where Peter and John are together, John is the first one to understand and Peter's the first one to act. <laughs> and we saw that earlier when we read John 20, right? Peter and John are running. To the tomb, John gets there first. He looks in, but he doesn't go. Peter looks in and he's in. John makes an understanding, recognition about who Jesus is. And Peter takes off. Running, swimming. To get to Jesus. Peter had been stripped down probably to his loincloth. That would have been typical. He would not have been completely naked. That would have been an affront in that culture to be that way. He's just stripped down for work. We would say he's wearing shorts and t-shirt or maybe just shorts. He grabs his outer garment, jumps in the water to get to Jesus. He's not waiting on that boat. He knows those guys. They row too slowly. He wants to get there. Peter may have been contemplating a return to fishing. But he loved his Savior. And when he saw him, he was compelled to go to him. Peter's swimming lesson reminds us that when you truly encounter Jesus Christ, nothing else will satisfy you. And when you really see Jesus Christ for who he is, worship is normative. Chapter 20, verse 17, Mary sees Jesus and she understands verse 16, who he really is. Her eyes are opened and she says to him, Rabboni, there's something that happens between verse 16 and 17 that John doesn't record, but we understand what happens because in verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me she falls at his feet and grabs hold of him and worships him. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things. Verse 20, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 28, Thomas My Lord, and my God, if Jesus has been genuinely revealed to you, it is impossible to be apathetic. There is no complacency with the risen Christ. And if you are complacent, my friend, if you're apathetic, if this just seems to be a whole lot of hoopla, now bring on the chocolates and the ham. It'd be a good time for you to examine whether you're really in the faith. Because if you've really seen Jesus, you can't help but worship. Jesus provides in one other way. He cooks breakfast. Verse 9. They got to land and they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus already has Breakfast going. The disciples hadn't caught anything all night long. Jesus already had the fish at the shore, and he's already cooking. Jesus said to them, verse 10, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. The question is why did Jesus ask the disciples to bring the fish? I mean, he's already got fish there. Some have suggested that Jesus didn't have enough fish and he needed more fish. I, I just have a hard time believing that that a Savior who can move 153 fish at one time uh, has trouble getting enough fish to cook on his own. That doesn't seem to me to be particularly plausible. Some have said that Jesus was just being compassionate to the disciples. So you know how when you show up at somebody's home for dinner and you bring something to contribute to the meal and Jesus wanted the disciples to feel good about themselves and that they had something to contribute to the meal as well. I, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> look at the question, or look at the statement, verse 10. Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Who caught the fish? Well, technically, the seven. Who caught the fish? Jesus. He put him there. And I think that's Jesus' way of very gently reminding the disciples everything you have is because of me. You don't have anything on your own. Everything you have received has come from my hand. And it's enough. It's enough. It's a reminder. (laughs) Ten minutes earlier, he'd said, Hey guys, you don't even have a morsel, do you? And now they have an abundance. On their own, nothing, with Christ, everything. And the text tells us that Peter, verse 11, went up and drew the net to land. Remember I said, Remember this? Seven guys in the boat can't get the net in the boat. Peter goes and drags the whole thing to, to the shore himself. Perhaps a remarkable feat of strength. He pulls it up and it's full. Notice this of large fish. And they count them 153. I think, I think it's 153 plus a bunch of throwbacks. Now, the question, of course, is everybody wants to know, what's the big deal about 153? Some have seen a reference to the Trinity in that one early church father said that there were 153 different kinds of fish in the world, and it represents the Christ's gospel has gone out to all the world. Well, that sounds great until you figure out that there are more 153 fish in the world. I think it's really simple. Who are the guys that were in the boat? They're fishermen. They've got a story to tell tomorrow. You better believe they're counting the fish. Hey, 153. Plus the throwbacks. Man, they know. Having provided the meal. Jesus said to them, verse 12, come and have breakfast. It's an invitation. Come to me. It's not just come get something to eat. Obviously, they were hungry. But it's an invitation to fellowship. Now watch verse 12. None of them, none of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you knowing That it was the Lord. Don't take this to mean they understood that this was Jesus that they traveled with for three years, the one who was their friend. They'd asked this question before when Jesus calmed the storm, Mark chapter 4. He's in the bottom of the boat sleeping, and they think they're about to die on that same lake. And they wake Jesus up and say, Don't you care that we're dying? And Jesus says, What? The storm? Hush, be still. And it stops. Verse 41, Mark chapter 4 And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They were with him, they didn't understand. In John 21, Christ has manifested Himself to them in such a way. Now they know it is the Lord of glory. Their eyes have been opened to see the magnitude of Christ. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And the fish likewise. This is not a communion meal. But if you're the disciples on this, at this event. Don't you think that they're flipping back a few days, a couple of weeks. To the last time that they shared a meal with Jesus. And he broke the bread. And gave it to them. And this is just another reminder to the disciples of his provision as the bread of life. So Jesus has provided some lessons in this story. Remember, the account is designed to be revelatory so that we see Jesus, so that Jesus is manifested, so that we understand the resurrection power that is inherent in him. So what should we observe about him? We should observe that Christ is sovereign. Submit to him. In this very brief account, Jesus directs the disciples, gives commands to them at least three times. Cast the net, bring some fish, come and have breakfast. And all three times they act without hesitation. Once they didn't even know it was him. They responded immediately by following him. He's their Lord. They submit to him. And it is that submission to him that empowered them to be used by him to build his church. And friends, what we need in our lives is that same kind of recognition of his absolute sovereignty and right to rule and right to reign in our lives and for us to be obedient to him. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the of the two houses in Matthew chapter seven? Two houses built on two different foundations. And my sense from the story is they're identical houses, identical in every way. Same construction process, maybe the same contractor built the same house, built those two houses, built them in the very same way. They both faced the same kinds of storms. There was nothing unusual about either storm that they, either one of them faced. They both faced tremendous storms. One stands and one didn't. What's the difference? The difference isn't Jesus Christ. The difference is the one who is built on the foundation of hearing and acting on what he has heard is the one whose life will be stable. You want a stable life? Then hear and act on what you hear from Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ means to obey Him. Remember what the, what Jesus told the disciples right before the ascension: to go to all the world, teaching everyone to do all that I have commanded. That's his That's his command: to teach us to obey. And friends, to believe in Jesus Christ means to obey Jesus Christ. If there's no obedience to Jesus Christ, that means there's no faith in Jesus Christ. Faith and submission to Him are combined in our relationship with Him. God's sovereign. Submit to Him. Another lesson, God is gracious. Trust Him. The catch of fish was a reminder of the disciples that they could not succeed in anything apart from Christ's provision. But it's also a reminder that he will always give them everything that they need when they need it. It May not come in their timetable. It might not come at the moment that they anticipated or they wanted. But it will come exactly when they need it. And friends, he is no miserly provider. He gives fully. And he gives lavishly. Jesus Christ is trustworthy. Life will not always be easy. For the believer, there will be challenges, there will be difficulties, there will be trials, there will be burdens, there will be hardships. Likely more of them because we are believers in Jesus Christ. There will be burdens, there will be pressures inside of us and there will be pressures outside of us. And brothers and sisters, you can trust Christ to take care of you. You can trust him on this earth and you can trust him to take you to glory. Don't look for an easy life. Look for a Christ-filled life and he will be enough. Christ is inviting. Delight in him. Fellowship with him. When I say Christ is inviting, I mean two things. One, I mean, he's attractive. You're drawn to him. He's captivating. He's the source of satisfaction and joy. He is better than anything that we can imagine. Regine will often ask me as we're going somewhere, do I look okay? It's like, no, honey, you don't look okay. You look astounding. Can't help myself. I'm drawn to her. Oh, friends, Christ is so much more inviting. I also mean by that term that he is inviting as an action, that is, as a verb. He is inviting us to join him and be with him. He invited the disciples to eat with him as an expression of fellowship and intimacy. And he invites all people. To come and have life in Him and with Him. And friend, just because you are here in this room today or online today on an Easter Sunday morning does not mean that you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ. Coming to worship on on Easter morning, Resurrection Day, does not mean that you're a Christian. Coming any Sunday morning to worship does not mean that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian means to acknowledge your sinfulness and your utter emptiness to satisfy Him or do anything that will be pleasing to Him on your own. It is to acknowledge the massive debt of your sin and what that sin has done to permanently estrange you from God. And that sin has created a barrier that you cannot overcome. Any more than the disciples could catch a fish on that night apart from Christ helping them. To be a Christian not only means to acknowledge your sinfulness, it also means to turn to Christ alone in faith and trust and believe that he has done two things. One, that he has absorbed God's wrath against your sin. He didn't die on that cross for his sin. He wasn't guilty on that cross. He was innocent, but he had assumed your guilt. And he absorbed God's wrath against the guilt of your sin. And he drained God's cup of wrath dry. And we know he did because he was resurrected Sunday morning. God looked at him and said, with your death I am satisfied. Here, let me prove it. So to have faith in Jesus Christ means that we understand I'm a sinner and He has paid the debt and it also means that we understand that He has removed the power of sin and death from us. We don't have to sin anymore. We can now do things that please God. We can live for Him. We can delight in Him. We can find satisfaction in Him. He has unshackled us from the debt of sin. The message of the gospel and salvation is simply that you have a debt of sin that Christ assumed for you. And the resurrection demonstrates that He's enough. That God is satisfied. The only question this morning is, do you believe? Do you follow Him as the greatest treasure on earth? And friend, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, I implore you to trust him, to follow him today. I want you to notice one more thing from this story. The fishing trip was planned by Peter, started by Peter. It seems to me that he was probably contemplating a leave from the ministry. This was his exit strategy And after the story, we never see Peter fishing again. He's utterly captivated by Christ and wholly transformed. He's done because he has encountered the risen Christ and seen that Christ for who he is. And he's not going back to fishing. In fact, none of the disciples that were in that boat that day ever returned as far as we know to what they had done in their calling before Christ. They're sold out. It is this Peter who a few days later will preach and 3,000 will trust Christ. It is this Peter who shortly after that will preach and they will haul him in before the courts and say, stop it or we'll imprison you. And he says, you do what you got to do, but let me tell you about this Jesus Christ. And he lays out the gospel in the courtroom. He's not turning back. What's the reason for the change? He's encountered the living Christ. And that same power that infused and transformed the disciples after they had seen the risen Christ is the same power that is made available to every believer, to every follower of Jesus Christ. Oh friend, I cannot promise you an easy life. I can actually probably promise you a hard life, but I can promise you also with that a satisfying life if you really encounter the resurrected Christ. Is he your savior? And do you delight in his resurrection? Father, I thank you for this story. We see such humanity here. Such realness from the disciples. And we see. An astounding savior. Oh, what grace. What patience. Twice already, he's shown himself to the disciples. They know who he is, but they need to see him again. And so here he comes again, giving them what they need, showing them who he is, so that they might not only serve him, but be utterly transformed by him. And Father, would you. Would you be so kind to work that same kind of transformation in us? Would you be so kind to give us eyes to see the manifested Christ and then be utterly changed by him so that we can be used by him? This is our great Savior. We love him.